Hi everyone, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by BJ Oncology. Today, we're delighted to welcome an international panel of leading breast cancer experts to discuss the 2021 St. Gallen International Consensus Session on the Optimal Treatment of Early Breast Cancer. Chairing the discussion with Giuseppe Carigliano from the European Institute of Oncology in Milan, and he'll be joined by Lisa Carey from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Hope Rugo from the University of California, San Francisco, and Fatima Cardoso from the Champalimo Clinical Center in Lisbon. In this podcast, the panel will be debating PCR as a surrogate endpoint, new adjuvant therapy in triple negative and HER2 positive breast cancer, gene signature assays, and adjuvant CDK46 inhibitors. I'll now pass you over to the experts for today's breast cancer session with VJ Oncology. So ladies and gentlemen, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's really my pleasure to introduce this outstanding post San Gallen with Lisa Carey from North Carolina Medical School in the United States, Hope Rugo, University of California, San Francisco, and Fatima Cardoso from Lisbon, Europe. My name is Giuseppe Curigliano and I work in Milan. So I believe we can start soon in discussing the first topic, that is the role of PCR in the post one setting. So you know very well that FDA stated that you need a PCR in order to approve a drug in the one setting. So the question for the panelists was, is PCR alone a valid surrogate to confirm the role in the one setting, or do we need the data on event-free survival and overall survival? And the panelists answered that in order PCR to be validated as a good biomarker, we need the data on event-free survival and overall survival for 83% of the panelists. So we just don't need to have higher PCR to approve an agent. Maybe we need more data on event-free survival and overall survival. So let's start with Lisa. What is your opinion on the, the results of the panel? I agree with the results of the panel, and and the question was very appropriate, which is, is that enough? Is PCR enough to get registration and approval for a specific drug, a new drug? And I and I do think that you have to get to clinically meaningful endpoints of event-free survival and overall survival for approval of a new drug. But there's some nuance here, right? Because PCR itself has some... Uh, you know, the local endpoints are irrelevant, right? PCR in, in overall generally also means PCR in the axilla. And there are surgical management strategies that PCR is a uh, intermediate endpoint, essentially, or a, a, a proxy for things that are meaningful from the standpoint of the extent of breast surgery, both in the breast and the axilla. Moreover, PCR at the moment tailors our adjuvant therapy for both triple negative and HER2 positive breast cancer. So I think we should also acknowledge that there is some value to it, but I think for introducing a brand new drug, I think we have to have event-free and overall survival endpoints. Hope, what is your opinion? You know, I I think that I fall kind of in the middle. I, I do think that for final approval of a novel agent, 
that we need something about event-free survival. We need to understand this. But we have to keep in mind that the trials that have been done in the neoadjuvant setting until very recently have been very small. So they're only powered to really look at pathologic complete response as an endpoint, and they aren't powered to look at event-free survival. So we're taking these small, nimble trials that give us a lot of information about tumor biology and tumor response to specific agents, and we're asking the impossible. So in some ways, by making this, you know, or you have to see overall survival benefit, you're going to take away the benefit that we've come to believe in, in the neoadjuvant setting. So I think we have to really think about this and maybe take it back one step. In addition to that, we know that post-neoadjuvant therapy, which is impossible to control, significantly impacts outcome. And for example, you know, the, the reason that this came up and will be addressed again for a number of drugs at the end of April by the US FDA is that uh, if you have really big trials that improve PCR and you continue the novel therapy in the post-neoadjuvant setting, you may further impact event-free survival, even for the patients who didn't get a PCR. So what should we do with this? And I think that if you have a drug that's already approved in the metastatic setting and you know what the toxicity is and the potential benefits in the metastatic setting, that you could consider PCR a an approval path for accelerated approval so that you enable patients to receive a drug balancing risk and benefit while you wait for the event-free survival endpoint. But then you have to require that those trials are powered in a way that can give us an EFS endpoint and you have to balance risk versus toxicity, which was the issue in the most recent discussion of uh, immunotherapy. Fatima, what do you believe? So I... I... You know, I've been fighting for this for many years um, because I always said that I was not happy with PCR alone. I think that PCR is a very good um, initial endpoint. And I think there is a smart way of developing trials, which is more, I think, what Hope was trying to say. And what we see, for example, with the immunotherapy trials in the early setting, why starting neoadjuvantly, having a first readout at the PCR level, I guess that if we don't have a PCR uh, benefit that is meaningful for the majority of types of drugs, not for immunotherapy, but for the majority of drugs, we could even stop the trial and not continue to go uh, with long-term follow-up. For those where you have a meaningful uh, change, whatever we define as meaningful change in the PCR, then you could extend the trial and, uh, and, and follow for event-free survival. I know that the worry is that trials become more expensive if you have to follow the patients for the event-free survival. So I think, for example, if you use PCR as also a triage method, like the iSPY program, I think this is very good. You can triage the drugs that you do, should not waste resources in large phase three trials, but you cannot just approve a drug based on PCR alone. Uh, that was, I think, the smart way of putting the, 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 the question and it will push, I believe it will push to a better drug development because you can still, I strongly believe you can still start a neoadjuvant and have a first readout and then decide what to do uh, in terms of spending more money following the patients until survival or not. 
And Giuseppe, let me make one additional comment, because I think what you're hearing from all three of us is PCR alone, like achieve PCR, here's your delta and you're done with drug development is not not enough. I mean, you need to continue. But I think that it's also worth noting, and I think Fatima was alluding to this as, as was home, it's a great place to start, right? It is a very good place to, to begin with because it, it gives you a readout of activity. It also gives you the opportunity to look for biomarkers that are related to um, prediction of response and outcome. And, and it's really hard to do that in the adjuvant setting. So the neoadjuvant setting actually gives us a lot of information about the disease, not just the drug, right? Because in many cases, uh, you know, response to therapy has as much to do with the underlying heterogeneity within our, within our tumors as it does with the drugs that we're using. And, and you really need the neoadjuvant setting to address that. It also brings up one extra question, which is interesting, which is what is the delta in PCR that means that you want to move forward? And I think that, you know, when you look, for example, it came up, it was really interesting to come up with immunotherapy that, you know, if you plan an endpoint and then you continue to follow patients along and your PCR, you, know, you end up with more patients than you intended for your endpoint. Like you, the patients you needed for EFS are now being looked at for PCR, which wasn't your plan. And so then you have a narrower PCR, but that PCR difference is still very big for say node positive disease. How do you interpret that is a whole nother question. You know, does it have to be the whole group or is there something special about patients whose tumors fit into specific groups? They metastasize to nodes. This may be particularly important for certain drugs like immunotherapy and not as important for others, but maybe the Delta is greater where we have higher risk disease. But since you mentioned immunotherapy, I would like to remember to you that we asked a specific question. So if you remember the question was, should we integrate immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting for triple negative breast cancer, since there is a large delta of increase of PCR and the answer from 90% of the panelists was no. So let's comment. Lisa, you start with the comment. Why do you believe the panelists say no? Uh, I think the panelists said no for, for several reasons. The first is there is a PCR delta, but even in the keynote trial that is the largest and is in fact powered for event-free survival, that delta actually has, as they cleaned the data, has come down a bit. Um, number two, we have immature data on event-free survival in a trial that's powered to give us mature data on event-free survival. So we will have information on this. And it, it, there is a hint of it uh, moving in the direction of favorability for it, but we don't really know whether it's statistically significant yet. And there is clearly toxicity of this kind of, of drug that's unique and can be long lasting. And so I think it's incumbent on us as providers and investigators to be particularly careful with these drugs uh, uh, in the early breast cancer setting. What do you think, Hop? Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's really interesting what we saw with um, the Impassion uh, trial in the uh, and the uh, keynote trial in the neoadjuvant setting, where PCR was increased, particularly in node positive disease, which we talked about earlier. I think that uh, that that particular point was hard because that wasn't an endpoint of the trial. Maybe we didn't know, but we also saw, for example, a number of other important endpoints that we may be able to incorporate into treatment. 
not exactly the question you asked, but still really important, which is that, you know, PDO one positivity seemed to correlate with a better response, regardless of what treatment you got. So it, it may actually be that what we're learning from these neoadjuvant trials is who needs more therapy versus who needs less and what specific therapy they need. For example, maybe node positive disease, and it's possible that PDL1 positive disease with poor responses benefits more from immunotherapy. It's hard to know. But I guess my thought on this is that as an overall approach, which is what the trial was designed for, node negative, node positive disease, immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting and continuing for a year after treatment, that the data wasn't strong enough to allow accelerated approval of that approach. But I think, for example, if you gave immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting for patients who have a low chance of PCR, and these are node positive patients, the difference I think is clinically very relevant. So it brings up the question, I mean, I agree that it's early to make a decision about the use of immunotherapy in all patients and that when you balance toxicity versus risk, this is a question we still need more results on. So I agree with Lisa completely. But I also think that there's a group of patients that we are not serving well now and that immunotherapy may serve those patients better. How we select out those patients right now where we're waiting for event-free survival, that is difficult because on the individual patient level, we hate to fail our patients and when the tumor biology is quite aggressive. So you could take the approach that there may be select patients where immunotherapy now is an appropriate treatment in the neoadjuvant setting. But it's better if we can do that still in a clinical trial setting and wait for the event-free survival data. And how do you comment the ODAC analysis of FDA? I think that's what ODAC was, you know, I was at ODAC, and I think that's what the panel was really saying, is that unless you had uh, organized the data to say, you know, and this is this is all about trial design in the end. You do a trial design, you're looking at a certain group of patients and you're looking at PCR in half of the patients and event-free survival and overall survival in the entire group. So then you say, okay, we improved the PCR rate in half of the patients, so should we approve the drug? But then as you went on, their secondary analysis was in a, a little less than the full patient population. There was still a big difference in PCR, but when they went to the full almost 1,200 patients, the PCR difference narrowed to just 7%, but was still substantially over 10% in node-positive disease. But that wasn't the question that was being asked. The question was, should we approve immunotherapy for everybody who has a greater than two centimeter tumor in the neoadjuvant setting continuing for one year of therapy? And the answer to that had to be that we have to delay for EFS data because we're giving people a lot of therapy and some patients died from therapy from therapy related complications thought to be due to immunotherapy. And, you know, some of these are hard to pick up, you know, uh, patients who developed adrenal insufficiency that wasn't picked up uh, before patients went to surgery. So it's a, uh, and, you know, people have other medical problems that could be exacerbated. So I think that the ODAC answered the question from the FDA in the only way that it could be answered. Does that mean that tomorrow, if you see a patient who's not responding to AC, for example, or EC, that immunotherapy won't provide any benefit? We don't know the answer to that question, and it's really a challenge at the present time. But I don't think everybody with triple negative disease should receive neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And Fatima, what do you believe? 
I think and Hope touched a very important point. It's all about trial design. And, and we, we should always remember that trials are experiments and that they have a, an objective and a method. And so the conclusion is determined by their design and their statistical plan. And sometimes we try to extract conclusions from trials that they were not designed to answer to certain questions. And we need to be careful with that because like we always sometimes uh, joke that we torture the data until the data shows us what we want to see. And that cannot be done. So I think that there is a fundamental piece of information lacking for us to be used to be able to use PCR for drug approval. And that is what is the delta? So when you are comparing two treatments, what is the delta that tells you that in the long term, that difference is substantially and meaningful? Because for patients, except for surgical approach, like uh, Lisa mentioned, uh, except for that, for improving the surgical approach, PCR has no meaning in, if it does not translate into a long-term benefit, right? So we need to find out, maybe we will in the future for specific mechanisms of action, specific subtypes, what is the delta? And then we can use PCR. I think it, until then, we need to see if that short-term endpoint translates into a long-term endpoint. And that's why we, we said, I, I believe, well, I said, and, and I voted that we still don't know, don't have enough knowledge to prescribe immunotherapy to everybody. And I just wanted to make one small note. I am very, I'm Another thing that worried me a lot about the PCR-based approvals is that they were often said to be temporary. So let's think about pertuzumab approval in the neoadjuvant setting. It says it's pending the affinity trials and then it will be reevaluated. Re the fact is that it was not. And so now you have in some countries, the fact that you have access to neoadjuvant is hindering and, and not allowing us to fight with the regulators of our own countries to have access in adjuvant because they tell us, oh, you can do it in just in neoadjuvant. And, and, and you know, that, that is for me is I'm over treating some patients in the, that do not need pertuzumab and I do not have access to those who need one year pertuzumab. So if we do it temporarily, then it's a, it's mandatory that the regulators go back and reevaluate. They cannot just say it's temporary and then never go back to that evaluation. So thank you. I believe we had a different point of view. Please, Lisa, go. go no, I have to say there's something that's come up that I think it has bubbled up and, and has to be attended to, which is the importance of the nature of the immune activation status of the underlying tumor. Um, Hope mentioned this, but I think it's worth noting that in all four of the larger neoadjuvant trials testing immune checkpoint inhibitors, it is true that, that you see an augmented pathologic complete response rate to either the immune checkpoint inhibitor-based therapy or just a chemotherapy, right? So PDL1 you know, status is in, is in, you know, a proxy for immune activation in the tumor. This has been seen in chemo trials in triple negative breast cancer using immune activation signatures. And it is a possible way towards tailoring therapy because it's also prognostic in the absence of therapy in the small studies we have. So 
I think we have to keep in mind that this evidence of immune activation within the underlying tumor is hugely important for all the therapies that we give and, and, and we ignore it kind of at our peril. Yeah, because you should really nice data, Lisa, in the HER2 positive uh, group that the immune signature played a big role. And, you know, there's data looking at TILS, for example, as a uh, marker of immune response that showed that even patients who didn't get chemotherapy, for example, had a better outcome. But, you know, I always look at that data and I think, wow, we could have made it even better because that's a great group of patients. No one should recur. But, you know, maybe it does all, you know, we'll come back to our understanding of HER2 positive disease in the end that, you know, immune activation is key and how to but how to manipulate that is tough. And we don't know the right answer to that yet. But I predict, I mean, it'd be interesting to know what everybody predicts, but I do predict that there is going to be a role for immunotherapy in early stage triple negative breast cancer. Uh, and that I'm, I'm very hopeful that we will see an event-free survival difference in uh, patients in Keynote 522. So let's move from immunotherapy to carboplatin the NOR1 setting for triple negative breast cancer. We have the date of the brightness trial. It seems that addition of carboplatin may increase pathological complete response rate. We have a beautiful editorial of HOPE discussing with Rebecca Dent on the role of carboplatin, but I remember the editorial of Lisa together with Eric Weiner on the same topic. So the question was, should we add carboplatin to neoadjuvant chemotherapy in triple negative? And the answer was for 40%, yes, for 60%, no. So which is your comment, Lisa? You let me go first all the time, so I get to frame this. Okay, I will change. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. No, I have to say, so I think there's nuance here. And, and, and I think, so it does increase pathologic complete response. It is a drug that we're very familiar with. We know the toxicity of it. In a node positive patient, you theoretically can eliminate uh, axillary dissection requirements in quite a few patients with this. So I think you can, in patients with larger tumors, node positive tumors, the local regional impact can be quite real of incorporating carboplatin. What we don't have is what we started this conversation about, which is, do we know that it affects event-free survival? Do, do we know that it affects the likelihood of relapse? And the data there are very mixed. In 40603, the CLGB trial using a pretty traditional chemo backbone, it does not. Underpowered, as, as Hope commented, but, but the hazard ratio was one, so it's pretty, it's not, not trending. In the GBG trial, the triple negative subset, it looked like it was. So I think there are trials that are answering this, but right now I consider it an open question, which is why I, I don't think it should be routine. And for you, Hope? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're excited to see in the, I hope, not too distant future, the event-free survival data from the brightness trial, which is, you know, we really have lacked to that. I mean, we keep talking about what is the, how should we use PCR for approval of novel drugs? But here we're using an established chemotherapy drug that doesn't really need to be approved because we can give it freely, relatively. 
Um, and, you know, but we're saying that PCR should be the primary reason for using this across the board. There is a downside, you know, patients who get uh, carboplatin have thrombocytopenia, more nausea, uh, more count suppression, use of growth factors. And in fact, in some cases might even have delay in surgery, uh, depending on how this is used. We know that when drugs go outside of the clinical trial setting, that we see more toxicity overall. So I think we have to really carefully evaluate is PCR enough? Again, I think that there may be a difference in patients who have more locally advanced disease, as Lisa was mentioning, versus those that do not. And so, you know, our approach has been to start with paclitaxel and add carboplatin in the more slow response setting. I don't know if that's the right way to do it, but it certainly avoids carboplatin in those patients who have a dramatic and rapid response to chemotherapy. Um, I think it's a really important part of our neoadjuvant uh, regimen for triple negative breast cancer. We just don't know yet who absolutely needs to receive a platinum, as Lisa mentioned, and uh, we need to see the event-free survival data to incorporate this as a general standard for all patients with triple negative disease. Does that mean that some patients could benefit from carboplatin? Absolutely. And so I think that we need to consider each patient individually. So Fatima, which is your perspective on this topic? So I, I've always um, used carboplatin in selected cases. So um, I usually like to start with anthracyclines. And if there is no excellent response to anthracyclines, then do the taxane with the platinum. Where there are cases where there's excellent response, then you can withhold the platinum because of what Hope was saying, increased toxicity, sometimes making it difficult to even give the taxane. And so, and for example, for young women, also affecting fertility. So carboplatin affects uh, particularly mm -hmm. fertility. So I think I, I, I agree and I voted against the use in everybody. I think there are selected cases where it is necessary and we should try to individualize those cases either through response or perhaps in the future uh, with uh, some other form of biomarker that we could find. So Fatima, another question for you. We asked oh, to the panelists. Okay, go first. Yes, yes, <laughs> Fatima. We asked to the panelists based on the tolerability of Olaparib and waiting for the date of the Olympia trial which was uh, finally the benefit in terms of invasive disease-free survival at three years uh, to use Olaparib in the Arivan setting. And so the absolute benefit that we asked was more than 10%, more than 5%, and more than 2%. And uh, the, the, the majority of the panelists answer that you need more than 5% in order to use Olaparib. So which is your impression on this vote? So um, I actually voted that way also. <laughs> I think that uh, usually, well, I was as, as usual thinking if I should demand overall survival benefit. <laughs> but, then, <laughs> but then I was um, considering that uh, in terms of balance, efficacy, and toxicity, that uh, and considering also uh, the the type of tumors that were included in the Olympia trial, so high risk situations where unfortunately rates of relapse are 
are substantial. I think that uh, uh, to decrease the invasive uh, disease-free survival uh, in a way that it's meaningful because 2% wouldn't be meaningful. So five to 10% is already uh, uh, important. Ideally, we should see the same as we saw with TDM1, but I'm not sure if we will get there uh, so high, but I think it is a good compromise considering also that it's relatively uh, well tolerated. So another escalation trial, Olaparim and the post new arrivants. Do you agree with Fatima impressions? I think that um, Olympia took forever to do. I mean, it really was, I think we've been waiting for these results forever. There was a, you know, as as we all know uh, most acutely, there was a big delay even in studying PARP inhibitors in breast cancer simply because uh, it was difficult to show a benefit. And uh, originally the idea was that patients would benefit who had specific phenotypes or genomics that uh, didn't turn it pan out so far, at least we've only seen the benefit in patients who have true germline mutations and now some data on somatic mutations as well. I think that you know, doing another trial in the post-neoadjuvant setting isn't going to be practical or feasible. I mean, why would anybody, if they saw an, uh, a DFS uh, benefit in the adjuvant setting and had a BRCA1 mutation, why would they not take a PARP inhibitor, you know? Uh, so you're not going to be able to randomize easily. Uh, the, you know, one question is going to be, and I don't know that we're ever going to answer that either, is whether or not you would have done just as well with a few cycles of platinum as a DNA damaging agent. Did you need uh, a PARP inhibitor for a year? And, you know, in general, the drugs are very well tolerated, but in a patient I had with locally recurrent disease that did not melt away with neoadjuvant therapy uh, and gave her a PARP inhibitor, you know, her tolerance. I mean, some patients really have a lot of nausea, anemia, other symptoms that make their quality of life in that year um, after they're uh, completed their main therapy uh, quite difficult. So I think that one, doing another trial isn't going to work. I do hope, we all hope, that the uh, difference that's seen in uh, Olympia isn't just statistically significant, but it's also clinically relevant for our patients. But I do predict that every patient who has a BRCA mutation and high-risk features will, will take a PARP inhibitor. Um, if based on the press release alone, you know, they're going to want to be taking a PARP inhibitor. So, um, you know, there's a lot of desperation in these patients to have a, a marker of risk that uh, makes them, then they're young and have bad disease. So I don't, I don't know how we're going to get around that. It's going to be critical for us to follow the risks of leukemia. So far, we haven't seen an explosion of this leukemia and myelodysplasia in ovarian cancer, but there is a defined tiny risk. So we need to balance that as well. So Lisa, I would like to complicate the question for you. <laughs> BRCA mutated, triple negative, dose dense and carboplatin in the neoadjuvant setting, and despite this receivable disease. So would you propose olaparib or capacitabine in this patient? Well, we have, this is a very unfair question. So you let me go last, but then you needed a very unfair question because we haven't seen the Olympia data yet. And as Hope says, you know, they're statistically significant and there's clinically meaningful and those are not always the same. If we assume that it is clinically meaningful and you see a five or 10% difference in, in relapse rate, I have to say, I think you're going to end up trying to, to thread the needle personally, uh, you know, if it's going to be similar to the subset analysis of create X in a large, properly 
you know, powered trial, I'm probably going to reach for a laparib, but I can promise you that there will be efforts to try and figure out how to do both in young, high-risk patients. And that's probably something we should acknowledge and be proactive about. Um, I think the, you know, the extent to which Olympia informs what we actually do is going to be really dependent on what Fatima was alluding to, which is, you know, in general, these sorts of, of studies in different risk groups have proportional benefits that are very similar across different strata of risk. But the absolute difference is, is of course, entirely dependent on who the patient is and who the study population is. When we've asked our patient advocates, typically they say the same thing that we do, that they start to feel that things are clinically meaningful when you get above about 3%. So I think when in the in the uh, you know the voting, I think you're seeing people reflecting what, in fact, our patients consider to be true. Also, so Fatima, now we move to ER positive or two negative patients. Let's start with the first statement following the results of Eric's founder, Mind Actatelorix. So, are there postmenopausal patients with clinical presentations meeting the criteria of Mind Actatelorix and Eric's founder? with low-risk signature and or recurrent score less than 25 who should receive chemotherapy? And the answer was no for 79% of the panelists. So do you agree in this statement? And do you believe that classical clinical pathological features like T67 may have still a role in determining the risk? So I, I agree with the statement. Um, I think now we have three large trials that have consistent results for postmenopausal women with low or intermediate uh, uh, results in a genomic profile, be it uh, the 70G profile print or the oncotype. So I think now we have consistent results. And I, I think we can, be, we can be on the safe side by saying that we can withhold a chemotherapy for postmenopausal women who, who meet this criteria. And um, I just one short reminder that clinical pathological factors were included in the design of MindEct. Not, not exactly in the design of the TaylorX and Responder, but there were analyses based on the criteria used on MindEct to also help, particularly for TaylorX, to help it, uh, um, interpret a little bit better. So I think, yes, if I have someone postmenopausal with clinical pathological features of high risk, but a low risk or genomic profile or an intermediate risk genomic profile, we can withhold chemotherapy. What do you think, Hope? You know, I think that um, medicine is never concrete. Um, and uh, that's, it's just difficult. I mean, we, we're always going to be faced with situations where uh, we're not comfortable with a decision either way. For example, uh, you know, I'll give you an alternative example. You know, you have a, a recurrence score of 28 and a patient who has locally advanced breast cancer who's 76, you know, are you going to start with chemotherapy? This is ERPR strongly positive, or would you potentially give endocrine therapy first to see if you get a response? And, you know, in some of those patients, and we all have our own clinical examples, we've seen great responses to endocrine therapy. And we know PCR rates are low in that group of patients. There's a lot of 
a, a lot of consideration. So what do you do with the opposite situation, which is really what we're addressing here? So you have a patient who's postmenopausal, but has a high-grade tumor with lymphovascular invasion and three positive nodes with extranodal extension. I think that we do in that situation, you know, I agree with Fatima that we don't want to take the clinicopathologic characteristics as our primary driver, but we can't ignore them entirely. No trial is going to be able to tell us in that group of patients that there's no benefit from chemo. So, of course, I voted that. I mean, this is what our information is. I voted the same way, but I think we do still need to take the individual patient into account, much as we've been discussing with the other issues here. So there may be a patient who falls into an eligibility criteria for these trials, who might still benefit from chemotherapy. Um, so Lisa, please. Uh, Lisa, yes. just, just let me say that what I said is meeting the criteria of high risk within MindEx. So locally advanced were not included. So again, I think uh, we, we need to be careful when we say, so it is, it's not for locally advanced, not even stage three uh, uh, breast of cancer, course. all right? So following those other characteristics in, included in the trial, up to three positive nodes, no, no more than that. And of course, there will be patients where you are uh, doubtful. I think the biggest clinical pathological criteria that sti I still don't know what to do with it in these circumstances is great because in mind that grade was not independent uh, of the signature, but for example, in the ADAPT trial, it was. <laughs> so uh, I still don't know if you have a grade three by itself alone, if you should always go for chemotherapy. And that's uh, perhaps a question for the next Sangala. So Lisa, to you, the conclusions regarding postmenopausal, you have been also the discussant for the Taylor X uh, task, so I remember this. So please go ahead. Well, I, I think, you know, what what you're hearing from Fatima and from Hope is is also, I think, the consensus opinion, which is in postmenopausal women with up to three involved lymph nodes. And I have to admit, we should acknowledge there weren't very many three involved lymph node patients in those trials, but just generally meeting the criteria, I think there's general consensus that you can use the genomic assays to defend omitting chemotherapy in a rational way. I think the, the devil being in the details, we have to be very careful that this shouldn't be extrapolated to patients who didn't belong in the trials, who weren't ineligible for the trials. And we shouldn't assume that no benefit in a lower clinical risk situation means there's no benefit in very high clinical risk situations. Very good. Now we move to premenopausal women, ER positive or two negative. I would like to start with Hope, with the first question we asked to the panelists. So for premenopausal women with the not negative breast cancer, a recurrent score between 16 and 25, the recommended treatment was tamoxifen alone, ovarian function suppression with tamoxifen or AI, and chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy. And the surprise was that 53% of the panelists answered ovarian function suppression plus AI. So there was someone proposing not to give chemotherapy to those patients, which is your opinion. You know, it's, it's complicated, and I think that because we 
we didn't answer that question. I mean, we didn't look specifically is ovarian function suppression and an aromatase inhibitor or possibly tamoxifen adequate to treat patients who have a score between 16 and 25 who in Taylor X seem to benefit a little bit from chemotherapy, although I think the benefit was much greater in scores from 21 and above. Um, And we know that the, you know, there may be some impact of individual clinical pathologic characteristics here in young women. But, and we also know from text and soft that the benefit of ovarian function suppression seems to be significant based on clinical pathologic characteristics where we didn't get recurrent scores. So what do we do with that group of patients? I think for the majority of patients who have no negative uh, hormone receptor positive disease and uh, scores in that range, that indeed ovarian function suppression and an aromatase inhibitor is a very reasonable option. And that chemotherapy as a treatment should be limited to patients who have uh, really, you know, uh, a very high, I think, uh, risk sense themselves who want to do everything for a small benefit and for patients potentially who have other high-risk features, uh, even though we're trying not to look at clinical pathologic features too much. I mean, it may be that very high-grade disease and other risk features play a role. Um, So here, again, I think we need to individualize treatment, but for the majority of young women, I think that ovarian function and suppression and an AI is reasonable. That said, that's tougher than doing a few cycles of chemo. Uh, there's no question about that. Doing five years of ovarian function suppression and an AI for a young woman is, is tough in terms of toxicity. But indeed, we don't think that, we think that's really better in terms of therapy for this disease than chemotherapy. Lisa, do you agree? Um, I, I agree with a slightly different spin. I'm pretty conservative in this arena. Um, and I think, you know, to Fatima's point earlier, you know, trials only answer the questions that they ask. And so w- I think we wade into extrapolation a little bit cautiously here. Um, I think at some point in the risk continuum in a premenopausal patient, in the node negative setting, we did see, again, in a post hoc subset analysis that we have to be cautious about, that it looks like the recurrence score did start to behave as one might have a priori thought it should, where at the higher risk scores, you start to see a benefit of chemotherapy. What I'm not clear about is whether ovarian suppression supplants that or just is numerically equivalent, because I'm not sure that the ones benefiting from chemo are the same as the ones who benefit from ovarian suppression. So if you just treat it as a numbers game, I think the majority of patients with a low to intermediate score on uh, recurrent score and node negative for premenopausal likely can do well with just uh, ovarian function suppression and uh, endocrine therapy. Um, As you start getting up into the mid-20s or higher, I actually use chemotherapy. And I agree with you. I was really impressed with the difference in uh, data looking at, you know, when you're looking at 16 to 20 and 21 to 25. And so I use the same approach and it's really, you know, splitting hairs to some degree, because I don't know that, you know, that was retrospective, but I take the same approach. So Fatima, you recently updated the date of mind act and published it already. Can you comment on the use of chemotherapy in premenopausal women? So what I take from this observation and remember, like uh, Lisa was saying, this was a, a a post hoc uh, non-unplanned subgroup analysis done in TaylorX that was then re- also done in MindAct and then also in the in the responder. And but 
Despite that, the results are consistent. So there's something here telling us that uh, uh, women, premenopausal women, uh, chemotherapy does something. If what it does is just the induction of a menopause, and that's the effect of chemotherapy, or if there is a cytotoxic, direct cytotoxic benefit of chemotherapy, we do not know. So what we, what I have done, so how it has affected my practice, perhaps the best way to say, is that I use less uh, genomic profile now in premenopausal women, because I, I do not know how to interpret the results uh, so well. And so, uh, and also a word of, of hope is that there is an ongoing trial, an ADAPT trial that is comparing both approaches, the over function suppression and chemotherapy. So we will know. So Lisa, now we move to the last topic. That is the use of CDK46 inhibitors in the Arivan setting. So the question for the panelists was, uh, should patients with ER positive or two negative high risk breast cancer receive adjuvant CDK for six inhibitor therapy with abemacyclib? And the answer was yes for 54% of the panelists and no for 46%. So can you comment on this uh, on these results? <laughs> so yeah. a clear consensus. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think the the fact that it was so split, I think, reflects the fact that we're in a a zone of of emerging data, right? So uh, Monarch E in a high risk population at an early look showed a benefit. Pallas and Penelope B did not using a different drug. I think um, many people in a high-risk patient with multi-node positive breast cancer, if you can get a bemacyclib, would add it at this point, awaiting further uh, uh, data to come out with the maturity of Monarch E. Um, but I think in the conventional sense, I think uh, many people for conventional adjuvant therapy probably would not at this point. What do you believe? Oh, any comment on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that we uh, we struggle so much with the treatment of high-risk hormone receptor-positive disease, you know, with the exception of patients who have uh, extraordinarily high-risk uh, disease, more, you know, basal-like. Uh, you know, most patients don't have a pathologic complete response. We we see relapses. We see multiple positive nodes in these patients, uh, and it's, it's quite difficult to know how we can really uh, change the risk of distant recurrence in the long term. So seeing this data was very exciting with uh, Bemaciclib and Monarch E. How we're going to parse this out, of course, we need longer follow-up, but at the moment, it's very hard to not think about using these drugs in patients who have very high-risk disease. So four or more positive nodes, you know, we know those patients have such a high risk of recurrence and their risk of recurrence based on the HICAM data is actually earlier. So it pushes, I mean, we know their risk continues out, uh, particularly in indolent disease, but they do have a high risk in that first five years where we already know there's a benefit from CDK46 inhibition uh, based on the monarchy data. So I think that in that group of patients, we could consider using abemaciclib now based on the data we have. We're not creating cancers. People didn't die of toxicity and we understand the toxicity very well. We have a lot of experience. What to do with the one to three positive nodes and KI67? I don't think we have the answers there yet. And so we need more data to treat those patients with a drug that, albeit 
is very tolerable and doesn't cause mortality in uh, the you know in almost all patients still has toxicity and impacts quality of life. I just saw a number of my patients came in for their uh, two-year end of therapy on Monarch E, and they were very happy. <laughs> I <can> tell you, <laughs> you know, okay, no more diarrhea and no more fatigue. You know, my hair might get thicker. You know, there's a few different things that, you know, people really uh, struggled with during their two years, albeit everyone would take it again. So that's my approach right now. So Fatima, your comment. So I think there is one piece of data that bothers me a little bit. So if you look at the curves of the trials with the palbo, and if you try to say, okay, if they had reported more or less at the same time that uh, Monarch E reported, uh, the difference was more or less also the same. So what will happen to the curves on Monarch E with longer follow-up will help me take a, a, a better decision. I, I'm still indecisive for the moment, and I, I, I still would like to see more data. Having said that, for those uh, particularly for those who have very, very high risk, um, I think I would like to optimize endocrine-based therapy. And one way of optimizing is clearly adding the CDK46 because we see that in the metastatic setting. So I don't have access to it. I cannot do it. It's not approved or, or accessible for us to do it. But I, I understand that in some circumstances, it should be okay. But I would cautious that it's not for every single patient with ER-positive HER2-negative disease. And I'm afraid that because it's freely available, that it might be an exaggeration of the use for uh, every single uh, patient. And uh, I think also here, we have a very important thing, every important uh, question to be answered in the future is, is there a circumstance where this optimization can replace chemotherapy? And I, I think it will be very interesting to, to run trials into that perspective. Thank you so much. Optimizing uh, local and systemic treatment for early breast cancer was the theme of Sangal in 2021. So thanks a lot to Lisa Carey, Hope Rugo, Fatima Cardoso. This is Giuseppe Curigliano from Milano. And see you to the next VUJ and Ophocology meeting. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this breast cancer session with VJ Oncology. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.